Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson and Sean Powell. Thanks to them for their generosity and their enthusiasm for our stories. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear more, please consider joining Christy, Paul and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. Visit our website and click support us for more details. Our guest on the show today is Daisy Black. Daisy is a Sheffield-based medievalist, theatre director, storyteller and folk dance teacher. She works as a lecturer at the University of Wolverhampton, where she teaches English literature and specialises in medieval religious drama, with a particular interest in concepts of time and gender. She's also one of BBC Radio 3's New Generation Thinkers. And Daisy has worked in a diverse range of roles, including freelance theatre director, academics art advisor, writer and storyteller. She's produced performances of several medieval mystery plays in Manchester and Sheffield, and over the last few years has been commissioned by Manchester Cathedral to produce a series of historical monologues. As a teller of medieval stories, Daisy performs Broken Shells, a storytelling project that weaves together narratives from Chaucer's Man of Law's Tale, the myth of the giantess Albina, and the poetry of Sappho, together with folk music, in order to raise funds and awareness for refugees in Calais and Lesbos. She's also produced one-woman shows on The Bayo Tapestry, The Full Yarn, and Unruly Woman, a collection of medieval stories about women defying the restrictions placed on them by their class and gender. If that wasn't enough, Daisy also runs medieval drama and Shakespeare workshops at national folk and storytelling festivals. Now you can follow Daisy's work online and check out her upcoming shows and performances on her website at www.daisyblack.uk or by searching for her on Facebook and Twitter at Daisy E. Black. Check the episode notes and our own website for all of those links. This is the first interview that we've recorded virtually due to restraints of the lockdown. And so we hope you'll forgive some issues with our audio this time round. You will hear some interference at the start of the story, but it will quickly clear up. And I'm afraid that guest appearances from housemates and outside traffic make these locked down interviews occasionally lively. We're going to hear from Daisy about the fascinating relationship between her work as a storyteller and a medieval academic. But first, Daisy is going to share with us a comic tale from medieval France. Drawn from the genre of the French fabliau, this tale is called Sir Borongier of the Long Arse. In Lombardy, where people are not very brave, there is an old knight who has a very clever daughter. Although this old knight comes from a a big line of great big heroes, he's not very bright himself and um, he's not made a good work of his fortune. In fact, he sort of squandered it and he now owes quite a bit of money to a merchant in the town. In fact, he owes so much he's not quite sure how he's ever going to repay him. And so the old knight hits upon what he thinks is a really great idea. He is going to marry his daughter off to the merchant's son. 
That's why the merchant's son gets the fancy title of knight. The debts are repaid and everyone lives happily ever after. The daughter is less impressed by her dad's plan, but smart girl though she is, she can't think of a better way of solving these debts. And so the two of them stand in the church porch together and say their vows. Maiden becomes wife, lad becomes knight. This new knight loves his repose. Let's just say he likes some pressing a mattress better than committing deeds of chivalry. He spends his days gorging himself on hot pies and custard tarts. His favourite pastime is to ride into town and look down his nose at everyone who used to be his friend. He never does the dishes, and he farts in bed. And after a few months of this, the, the bragging and the gorging and the lazing around and the farting and not doing the dishes, his wife has had enough. Husband, she says. May I remind you that my family come from a long line of chivalric heroes, all of whom have committed deeds of bravery. Whereas you, you do nothing. You lie around the house all day and you do nothing. You're bringing shame to my family's name. When he hears this, her husband is very angry. He draws himself up to his full height and says, You don't have so fancy an ancestor that I don't have a better one. I'll show you. So the next day, he gets up very early and he goes to the armory and there he pulls on the woolen leggings he buckles on the steel shoes and the chainmail armor and then he puts on a great padded tunic that makes him look like a, a walking duvet and he clatters around in the dark desperately trying to tie all of his plate armor into place eventually his wife wakes up what on earth are you doing clattering around in here she says it's six in the morning he draws himself up to his full height and he says, I am off to the woods to fight a knight who has insulted me. I shall cut off his head so he doesn't dare insult me again. And his wife thinks this is pretty strange because she thinks the only enemies her husband has are his former mates from the village. But she passes him the helmet and he puts it on his head and he grabs his lance and he grabs his shield and he clatters off downstairs and, Don't forget your sword, she yells after him. As she watches from the castle window, she can see the knight in his shining armour ride down the valley and up towards the forest. As she thinks he cuts a fine figure of a man, his armour is golden in the morning sun, bright and new and completely unspoilt. Once he gets into the forest, the knight slows his horse to a gentle amble. And they go along like this for a little while until they get to a clearing. In the middle of the clearing is an old oak tree. And this tree is ancient. It's gnarled and twisted over on itself, a proper end on earth. When he gets to this tree, the knight dismounts with a crash. He takes his great noble shield and he hangs it by its chain on the top of the tree. Then he takes out his sword, lifts it high above his head, and clang, crash, clang, he batters it with more than a thousand blows. Then he takes his great lance and breaks it into four pieces. It takes him a bit of time to learn how to remount his horse again. His armour is uh, very, very heavy, and without a mounting block, it was, well, let's just say it's less than dignified. But eventually he manages it and he takes his shield and he takes a splinter of his lance and he rides straight out of the forest. When she sees him coming, his wife runs down to the stable. 
She goes to help him dismount, but get back, he says. You are not worthy to kiss the sole of my shoe. I have committed such deeds in that forest. I have vanquished my enemies. I have cut them into dust. There's no one in your family as brave as I am. And he looks so fierce in that moment, and she sees what a, a scarred, battle-weary mess his shield is. She sees that his lance is just a toothpick of what it once was, and, and she's scared he's going to beat her. So she steps back and bows her head as he takes his horse to the stables. The next day, the knight again gets up very early. He goes to the armoury. On go the woolen leggings, on go the steel shoes, the chainmail trousers, on goes the great big padded tunic that makes him look like a walking duvet, and he clatters and clangs around in the dark, trying to fit his armour in place. In comes his wife. What are you doing? She says, it is six in the morning. He draws himself up to his full height and says, I am going to the forest to fight an enemy who has insulted me. Pass me my helmet, I can't bend down. She's surprised, but she passes him the helmet and he takes his scarred shield and he takes a new lance and clatters off. Don't forget your sword. And she watches the knight ride down the valley and up towards the forest and she thinks he cuts a fine figure of a man. His armour is golden in the morning sun, still shining, still new, still completely unspoiled. When he gets to the forest, as before, he rides to the clearing, he dismounts with a clang, he takes his shield, puts it onto the tree, takes out his sword and clang, crash, clang, he batters it with more than a thousand blows. Then he takes his hefty lance and whoosh, breaks it into four pieces. He's slightly better at mounting his horse this time. He sort of manages it after about ten minutes, gets onto the horse and then digs his spurs into the horse's side and rides straight out of the forest. When she sees him coming, his wife rushes to the stables, goes to help him dismount, but get back, he says. You are not worthy to kiss the sole of my shoe. A word of advice for any listeners who might find themselves in a medieval comic story. If you ever find that you're in a bit of a repetitive narrative which might have a funny ending, don't play the same trick twice, especially if your wife is really clever. And so although she steps back, and although she lets him clank his way to the stables on his own, this time she notices something. Sure, his shield is, is a scarred mess of wood and splinters, and sure, he's carrying a toothpick instead of a lance, but, but his armour is as fancy and shining and burnished as the day he first put it on. And her husband doesn't seem injured or out of breath at all. She knows she's been tricked. She decides the next time he pulls this one, she's going to follow him and see what he does. The next morning, because these things always happen in threes, the knight gets up very early. He goes to the armoury. On go the woolen leggings, on go the steel shoes, the chainmail. On goes the great padded tunic that makes him look like a walking duvet, and he clatters around trying to put his armour in place. In comes his wife. What are you doing? She says, it's six in the morning. He draws himself up to his full fights and says, I am going, yes, yes, he says, we've heard all of this before. Look, shouldn't you just take one of the servants with you? Because your enemies are so numerous and so fierce. And he laughs at her and says, my love, there is nothing in that forest that I can't defeat all by myself. And so she passes him the helmet and he takes a shield, he takes a lance, he remembers his sword and he clatters down to the stables. 
and she watches the night ride down the valley and up towards the forest. And then she goes back to the armory, and she opens the chest which contains her father's battle gear, his dirty, grimy, scarred, wounded battle gear. And then she calls a maid to help her, because unlike her husband, she's not stupid enough to try and put on plate armour all by herself. And a few minutes later, you can see a second knight leaving that castle on a fierce war horse. As before, her husband has got to the forest, his ridden to the clearing, dismounted, hung his shield on the oak tree, and hack, 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 battered it with more than a thousand blows. He's making so much noise that anyone passing by would think that Satan himself was hosting a nice tea party for all of his friends in that forest. And it's this sound that his wife hears as she passes under the first branches. She follows the source of that very strange sound until she comes to a clearing where she sees a rather odd sight. There's a great shield hanging on a tree. And in front of the shield is a little man Hack, hack, hacking away at it with a sword that's several times too long for him. And she is furious. She digs her heels into her horse's side and rides straight at her husband. And he squeaks and steps back and drops his sword. And she speaks to him in a deep, terrible voice. How dare you cut down my trees and abuse your shield? You will regret this crazy business. I will not leave this spot until I have cut you into tiny pieces. And all the colour goes from her husband's face. And he says, I'm, I'm so sorry, good sir. I, I didn't know this was your wood or these were your trees. Um, please take anything you want. My, my horse, my, my land, my wife, anything in recompense. If his wife was a tad miffed before this point, now her anger grows to a red hot flame. And she laughs at his offer. No, she says, but I am merciful. I will offer you a deal. Either you can fight with me honourably now, and I warn you that when I win, you will straight away lose your head. Or I will dismount, and I will undo the points of my armour and bend over, and you can come and kiss my arse, exactly in the middle, if you please. At this, her husband's face relaxed, with relief. Good sir, he says, I have vowed to fight with no living man. Therefore, if you will kindly dismount, we will do as you have asked. And so she dismounts from her horse, she undoes the points of her armour, she does the ties of her leggings and drops them and bends over. As he is looking at the rounded cheeks of her arse from behind, it seems to him as though the sort of the cheeks and the quim were all the same thing. And he thinks he's He's never seen such a long arse on a man in all of his born days. But he's not quite to question. He kneels and he devoutly kisses her right at the hole. Once he's done, she stands up. She does up the points of her armour and she mounts her horse with a grace of fluidity that he can only envy. One moment, sir, he says, before you go, please give me your name, you who have so honourably defeated me. My name, she says. My name is Bonger of the Long Arse, and I put all cowards to shame. And she digs her spurs into her horse's side and phew, runs out of that forest. It's, um, 
well, let's just say he doesn't mount his horse after that. He's not quite sure he hasn't soiled his armour. And so he takes it by the bridle and he leads the horse gently out of the forest, down the valley and back up towards the house. His wife, of course, has got there before him. She goes back to the armoury and carefully takes off each piece of armour and lays it back in her father's chest. And then she goes to her bedroom and she summons the man that she had loved, the man that she had hoped to marry before her father's debt got in the way. And they're in bed having a lovely time when her husband gets back from the forest, aching, humiliated and just not in the mood to find his wife in bed with someone else. What's worse is that they don't even bother stopping when he does get there. Wife, he says, how dare you shame me like this? I will have you beaten for this behaviour. But she sits up in bed, her face full of fire. Oh, will you, husband, she says. In that case, I will complain of you to my dearest friend, Lord Bonger of the Long Arse, who puts all cowards to shame. He, um, he said he bumped into you in the forest today. At this, her husband's face goes ashen. And he says no more. From that day forward, she does exactly as she pleases. Brilliant. Cool. I really love that story. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's so much fun. <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to tell us a bit about it? It's... Uh, it's a French French comic fable, isn't it? Yes, you can find versions of it um, online. Um, the original one is is very kind of classist, so uh, it makes it quite clear that the reason he's terrible at being a knight is that he's of a lower class, he's never been trained to fight or anything, and he's naturally a coward. Um, but I sort of downplayed a lot of that in their relationship because I think there's actually a lot to work with anyway with somebody who gains a little bit of status uh, and starts throwing their weight around and um, and looks down on all the people that they were friends with before then. Could you tell us a bit more about the sort of the French fable genre? These were very, very popular stories um, that come from the, well, there's an oral tradition, a troubadour tradition. Uh, they're in very easy rhyme schemes, so they're quite easy to remember, pass on, um, and they appear in lots of different manuscripts, so French and English ones as well. There's quite a trade in stories between the countries. Um, and our equivalent, of course, would be Chaucer's stories, his, his collected stories. Uh, we have a few English fables as well. So uh, Dame Sirith is one where a, uh, an old woman tricks another woman by getting her dog to cry in front of her and pretending that this is a dog that's been turned into, um, a daughter that's been turned into a dog by, um, by an unscrupulous clerk. So um, we have quite a lot of these traditions and there are animal fables. You may have heard of the, the Reynard the Fox series. And they usually involve people playing, um, let's say, bodily tricks on each other to uh, get food or to get sex or uh, just to humiliate somebody. Um, and this one is, uh, is very much a, a sexual humiliation here. What kind of context were these stories told in? Um, they are interesting, the versions we have that have survived, very aristocratic classes. Um, so early on, a lot of scholars thought, oh, you know, these were lower class stories. These are really rude and grounded. But because so many of them are mocking the lower classes and the ones we've got that survive, uh, survive because someone wrote them down in very expensive uh, manuscripts. Vellum is not a cheap thing to produce um, when you're trying to copy out stories. 
um, actually, it seems that they were kind of traded amongst the, the upper classes um, as, uh, as, as gifts, as ways of entertaining each other. So, uh, bawdy, rude humour being passed amongst knights and things. Uh, you can easily see how yes. that, that would have happened. And that's what I, I love about the Middle Ages as well. Um, my students are always sort of really surprised when um, I teach them, say, plays where religious subjects are mocked or uh, kind of social classes are mocked, uh, the upper classes are mocked. And, um, and really, I point out, well, if you go into any... Uh, Norman church in England you will see okay all of the religious imagery but you've also got gargoyles you've got asses, you've got all sorts of rude things going on in the margins and these two are seen uh, very much as one feeding the other as, as two sides of uh, a story. Was, was this connected to sort of the, the troubadour tradition you know with, is the, with these manuscripts that were meant for or recorded from performance do you think? I think it's quite likely with um, certainly a lot of the, the fablio that are very structured. Um, they look as though they're made to be sung um, or certainly made to be recited uh, in quite a memorable way because if you've got uh, quite a strict rhyme screen like that, it really helps you remember it, but it makes it quite simple for uh, fitting to lyrics. So, um, yes, it's very likely that these are, these are sung performances. And we have some really great bawdy folk songs now as well which do the same thing. So one I use in my... Unruly Woman Show, which this story comes from too, is the Lonely Widow um, song, which is about a woman who makes the, a pact with the devil that and if he can satisfy her in bed, then she will go to hell with him. It doesn't go so well for, for old Nick. Uh, I know the one you mean. I love that song, actually. It's, um, it's very tuneful as, as well as being funny. <laughs> yeah. As both an academic and a storyteller, Daisy is working in an exciting creative space where the two disciplines directly inform and fuel each other. I started out by asking Daisy about her role as a lecturer at Wolverhampton University. Yes, I teach well all sorts of English literature, but medieval is my specialism. I did my degree in medieval drama, so mystery plays and the like, and very much looking at uh, what comedy tells us about anxieties about those stories. So when Noah and Mrs. Noah have a huge fistfight on the ark in some of these plays, uh, what are they actually arguing about? And a lot of it comes from Noah being, oh, brave new world, you know, we're swept away all of the sin and we can start again. And she's like, yo, what about our cousins and my friends and the midwives who brought your sons into the world? So uh, she's much more of a human figure in those <laughs> stories. Yeah, that's interesting. So... Almost in the same way as people are surprised by these kind of bawdy songs and things, um, it sounds like these stories kind of um, deal with uh, people in the past thinking through the implications of all these kind of like biblical stories and myths and what might actually have happened beyond the pages of the Bible. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a whole uh, apocryphal storytelling tradition as well of... Um, Oh, things like how Joseph reacted when he found Mary was pregnant and didn't buy her excuse immediately and uh, what Jesus was doing as well when he was a little child. And he's really naughty because you've got this tiny kid with superpowers. Um, so there's this whole wonderful storytelling vein um, there as well. Uh, so your work has involved a lot of story already. It was very much my my lecturing that got me into storytelling um i was 
my first job was uh, at the University of Hull and my first lecture was on the Battle of Malden. So you've got all of these really bright students who have come to uni first semester, first year, and suddenly they're trying to deal with old English literature. And they're like, I can't even read this. This is horrific. This is really scary. Um, so I knew I needed to get them sort of emotionally engaged with the text before we got into the language work of it. So I started that lecture by telling the story of the Battle of Malden. Um, and I uh, told about how the two armies are lined up either side of the sandbank and the hawk flying above, um, looking down at its former owner, knowing that the owner is not going to survive the battle. Um, so I told them the whole thing and I massacred the whole of the front row and uh, they seemed to really enjoy it. So it was terrible storytelling, but it really made me think, oh, this is a really useful thing um, to do. And now I've done it quite a bit more as a way of making some of the amazing stories I'm working on in my very serious academic articles become um, just enjoyed by other people, really. Um, so it's it's sort of grown from there. But I'm very interested in how you can use storytelling in teaching and lecturing and how to um, how to make it a way of making subjects much more accessible, more readily to students. So last year I ran a storytelling for medievalist workshop at Leeds Congress, which is our sort of big get together. And it's great seeing what people are doing with it now. Did you know much about that whole kind of storytelling world? Uh, when did you first kind of get in touch with that? I think through folk festivals, uh, probably through Sidmouth, going to the story circle there. And um, there, and Whitby, I first saw Sean Lee tell and Taffy Thomas tell. They did a great sort of evening of bawdy stories there one night, which was kind of hooked me a bit. Um, and I'm just like a little kid watching this, because until then I hadn't seen much storytelling since I was quite small. But, um, you know, I will go and I will watch Taffy and I will sit in the front row with my mouth open. And I will believe everything that man says. But I'll just be, it's just magical, isn't it? I think I met you first at a storytelling festival, didn't I? I was running a mask workshop there uh, with Mr Fox, your sort of performance dance group. And so I ran something on masks and storytelling. Um, so that was the first time I'd been at a festival at the Edge. And it was such a wonderful weekend. Just listened to more stories in that weekend than I had ever heard in my life. That got a lot <laughs> of things started. And I think after that I started coming to Sheffield Story Forge and having a go and trying to be brave and yeah, seeing how this works. Yeah, it's a really useful place, isn't it? Like local clubs to cut your teeth on on performance storytelling. Daisy's work as a storyteller draws directly on her knowledge of medieval literature and narrative. And she's produced a series of shows which illuminate different aspects of medieval culture but are also intimately connected to the concerns of the present. The full yarn brings to life the history recorded in the Bayo Tapestry, a crucial part of Britain's national heritage. Broken Shells reinterprets the Man of Law's tale from Chaucer through the perspective of the refugee crisis and forced migration, while Unruly Woman is all about the different ways that medieval women defied the norms imposed on them by medieval society. When did you start sort of creating shows? Did that sort of grow out of the stuff that you were doing at lectures? A little bit, but um, whenever I want to learn a skill, um, I promise somebody I will do that thing for them in a year's time because I need a deadline, otherwise I just never get round to it. Uh, so I think I've watched quite a bit that year and um, 
seen some of Deb's Newbold's longer shows as well, so I knew it was possible to tell a long, overarching story um, as well as sort of the smaller ones I was telling at, say, Storyforge, the, the shorter, less scary ones. So I promised some of my medieval colleagues that I would tell them the Man of Law's tale, which is about um, Custance, um, who is set adrift in a rudderless boat, um, for a conference called Women at Sea the, the following year. So I had a whole year to go, right, I need to work out how to do this and how a long story is going to work and how to weave in folk song. Um, and that produced about a 45-minute performance, which is what they needed at the time. And it went down really well, even though I was probably really rubbish at the time because yeah. it was sort of the first time I'd, I'd done it. But they really enjoyed it. And I developed that a lot and turned that into Broken Shells, which was my first uh, long performance, which, as I say, mixes um, folk song, it mixes storytelling, and it's quite an epic story um, of her travels. So, yeah, it was really by just jumping in there and having a go with a very forgiving audience, and it was okay. I asked Daisy about how her role as a storyteller fitted together with her academic work. Do they naturally complement each other, or are they very different roles? Yeah, it's, it started very much as an adjunct, as a, oh, this is another tool in my box of skills. And... But now my university are basing one of their impact case studies on a lot of the data I've gathered through storytelling. So that's quite good that I can use this other hobby I have to, to do something for, for them as well, which is good because they, they're always looking for ways in which they can um, make their research accessible. So it's not just bouncing around in our ivory tower. It's something that, um, that everyone can enjoy. And I'm quite lucky because A, my subject is naturally quite interesting. Um, People are just fascinated by the Middle Ages and really interested in a lot of these crazy stories. And also the storytelling has made it like it's a very simple and easy way to get that across. So um, so that's been good. And I love telling stories for medievalists because they get like all the stupid jokes I mainly put in there to amuse myself. Um, so all of the sarcasm about gender roles in the Middle Ages. Um, and of course, I go to lots of conferences as well. So quite often I can use the research those academics have done to underpin my next telling of a story and that always goes down quite well as well because uh, um, it, it yeah it shows how things in I do a lot of gender and feminist medieval studies and that's quite a gift to crack open some of these stories especially we've got as you were saying earlier you know, these these assumptions that um, it is noble for a knight to languish after a married woman uh, or someone who's just not interested and it starts you looking at these courtly love stories as orchestrated campaigns of sexual harassment, which is what they are. But, <laughs> mm. but it gives you these, these different ways of telling and looking at things. I suppose it must be difficult um, working with some of these sources sometimes because of all of that um, uh, kind of difficult content, um, but also perhaps causing us to reflect on the fact that... Uh, yeah, as I said, orchestrated campaigns of harassment. Unfortunately, you know, some of those narratives kind of have persisted almost to this day, haven't they? And if you look at the plots of some romantic films, some contemporary romantic films, it's changing a little bit now, but, you know, you get some of the same features, don't you? Yes, um, and I bring a lot of that modern cultural knowledge into my storytelling, especially in the Unruly Woman show, which is unashamedly kind of feminist medieval folk tales. Um, but yeah, there's, there, there are references in that to the, uh, the Me Too movement. There's, there are characters in that who hold open doors for you and expect you to be grateful, etc., etc. Um, so uh, I think actually modern 
I guess, modern courtship, I suppose, <laughs> uh, still contains a lot of these devices. Um, uh, modern flirting does as well. And if you look at pickup artists, their advice isn't so different. You know, be really persistent, kind of grind her down with plenty of messages or like just being there all the time, stalk her a little bit. And you think, well, that's that's the romance of the rose almost. It's, uh, it's sort of like a medieval pickup manual. That kind of like mixing in the modern and the medieval, you know, does that, uh, how how do you work that as a as a educational tool, you know, because I, I guess you want to help people understand the past and be aware of it. But, um, you know, as an academic, is that a challenge? Is there a danger of overwriting the, the medieval with our modern perspective? Yes, I would say it's more... Um... What I tend to do, there are a few things I use in my arsenal. So um, one thing is sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the easiest ways to sort of say, okay, this is how the medieval stories go. And um, that's not okay now, weirdly enough. Um, uh, sarcasm's great there because it's a, a point of connection between you and the audience. It, it involves a lot of laughter as well. Um, but it also is a great way of highlighting um, the obscene or the inappropriate, for example. Um, so yes, yeah, sarcasm I use a lot. Um, I call it out like it is a lot, and I also give perspectives to characters who aren't given perspectives in the medieval stories. So in in Broken Shells, for example, it has uh, an incredibly racist bit in Chaucer's original story, um, where um, one of the characters is evil because she's a Muslim, and another character is evil because she's a pagan. And, and the medieval Christian audience would have just accepted that and be like, well, of course they are, you know. Um, and obviously that's not okay now and some of the plays I work on are very anti-Semitic as well so you have to think about how do you deal with that material um, and in Broken Shells I've given those characters proper um, a little bit of backstory uh, a bit of an alibi um, motivation You know, hu I humanise them um, because I think okay why would um, the mother of a sultan in Syria be really, really upset that her son is going to convert his whole country to Christianity because he wants to marry some woman he's never seen. Um, you don't have to think too hard about that. Syria is where Troy is. And so maybe she's grown up hearing these stories of Troy and maybe she knows what happens to a country when a bride is taken from a distant land. Because the last time a bride did, it was Helen. Um, and that utterly destroyed a generation. And then you've got Trojan women and... Uh, all of those kinds of plays which really lament the fact that for this kind of romantic love where you change your country's culture um, lots of people die you know she knows what the body count is whereas her son is the courtly lover and doesn't get that so um, that's another way in which I don't overwrite the medieval story but kind of adds to it so that a modern audience has the context and perhaps has a little bit more compassion than a medieval reader would have done in dialogue with your academic career, it seems like a really fruitful way of kind of uh, um, sort of that crossroads, I guess, between the academy and and heritage and uh, and that kind of thing. Yes, it it keeps me enthusiastic about it too. <laughs> it's really helpful actually in in my discipline because I work so much in um, medieval performance studies that I'm always looking at a text sort of with a director's or performer's eye um, and thinking, well. Sure, there's some really complex theology going here in this bit, but how do you perform it? Um, how do you put God on stage? What does that do to the audience? And I think um, becoming more of a storyteller myself has 
really helped with that because I can really imagine how people will respond to something. Um, before I got into storytelling, I did a lot of theatre making, but mainly as a director. The idea of, of acting was... I wasn't very good at it, but somehow <laughs> somehow with, uh, with storytelling, um, where you're not embodying everything, but you're sharing something, you're sharing a story, is, is less intimidating, and I'm, I'm really enjoying getting a chance to do that. So do you think that um, more academics could do with learning the sort of the skills of storytelling? I think some of the best academics are already storytellers. They just don't know it. Um, if you think back or, or, you know, or teachers generally, um, you know, the best teachers I can think of were the ones who told stories in their classes. And maybe it wasn't as a as a performance, you know, um, but it was really great. And it, I still remember those stories. So that's that's really great teaching. So I think, you know, we're always telling stories in our writing in our lectures, um, even in our um, research case studies, we're still telling these stories. Um, so it's just making people realise what skills they've already got um, and how actually perhaps then more people are interested in them than we think, I think, is the the main mm. thing. Um, and there are uh, some storytellers and academics specifically working on this. So Tim Ralphs, I know, does work with uh, Sheffield University PhD students and gets them to tell their research as a, as a story, which is a wonderful skill to tell somebody. Um, so this work is, is definitely happening and there's a medieval storytelling project as well up in Scotland, Cleo runs that. So um, it's definitely happening um, and I think that's great because it makes more people aware of storytelling as a genre as well. Um, I've had a lot of colleagues who've come to see me tell stories and they've been like, that is amazing, how do you do this? I'm like, you do realise you live in Swansea and you have a really good story circle there and then they go to that and they're like, oh my goodness, this is a thing. So um, <laughs> I think it's really mutually beneficial for both communities. <laughs> One of Daisy's most recent projects has a special resonance and importance in the present. Over the course of two weeks in April this year, 2020, Daisy organised the Modern Decameron Online Storytelling Festival Originally, the Decameron was a collection of Italian folk tales collected and written down by the Italian writer Boccaccio. And the framing tale for that collection is about a group of young men and women who have to flee from their city of Florence because of the encroaching Black Death. With an obvious parallel to the present moment, Daisy decided to organise a modern Decameron storytelling festival. With around 80-plus storytellers all pitching in to contribute, it really seems to have spoken to the needs of the moment. I asked Daisy about her inspiration for the project and what we could learn about using new digital tools and technologies as a vehicle for performance and traditional storytelling. Sure. Um, so this was one of those mad schemes that start as a throwaway comment and then become ridiculously big because everyone is invested in it. Um, I was coming back from work on what I didn't know then would be my last week it physically in, in the classroom. Um, and I'd been talking to one of my colleagues about um, Boccaccio's Decameron um, and how relevant it had suddenly become again. Um, this idea of um, people needing to isolate, self-isolate, uh, and what culture and art can do to help, you know, help in that situation when you're not allowed to go um, go to theatres, you can't go to storytelling anymore. All of my folk things were being cancelled, essentially. Um, and I was thinking, well, I'll probably be teaching online in the next few weeks. I didn't realise it would be so soon. But 
um, I wonder if we could do something like that with storytelling. So anyway, I put something up on Facebook saying, oh, it would be cool to have a modern Decameron where uh, tellers uh, all tell a hundred stories. And then the comments on that, I was like, oh my goodness, I've got like 40 people already saying they want to do this. So I uh, organised the whole through, thing through Facebook groups and, and words caught on. So um, as soon as we, you know, I had nearly all of the stories I needed when we launched the first day of 10 stories. Um, and I was still getting loads of people say, oh, can I tell some tales? So um, I ended up extending it. We ended up with 120 stories. So we did uh, two better than Giovanni Boccaccio in his, uh, his villa of 10 people. 83 different tellers out of those as well. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really an, an amazing project. And, um, and, and interesting, isn't it? Because... Um, you were you were one of the first storytellers um, who I'd seen actually doing a. Did you did you do a live uh, show on YouTube? Yes, that was um, unruly woman. Uh, my friend had a house concert, um, which uh, sold out because house concerts are obviously tiny audiences. Um, but I have quite a few friends who, for for various reasons, sort of anxiety, disabilities, etc. Um, you know, going to something like that would just always be impossible. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I'm doing this in my friend's house. It would be a really good time to experiment with, with seeing if you can live scream it. And uh, I had an excellent friend who knew the tech enough to be able to set all of that up. And uh, yeah, it worked. It worked fine. So this was two years ago, I think now. Um, and it's really good to to see lots of storytellers doing that now, especially uh, where gigs have been cancelled, to be able to uh, kind of live stream things and live stream stories. It opens it up. I think it's it's really exciting how people have responded. Um, I have seen, actually of all the things, storytelling is the thing I've seen most happening most quickly after the lockdown. Uh, people going online, recording stories, sending them out there, being really generous with them, with that. And then you've got things like Beyond the Border with their scheduled programmes each week and um, and various other events as well where you can actually, um, you can buy a ticket or you can pay the storyteller virtually somehow um, for their craft, which I think is really important because um, when I started the Modern to Camera and it didn't feel as though the lockdown would last a really long time, I was thinking, oh, probably by July we'll be out um, that's looking less likely. So actually, we do need online forms of um, of creating art and sharing our art with each other. Um, so I kind of hope that that continues even when we're allowed to to leave our houses, because it's a great way of making it accessible for everyone. Yeah, and I think it also seems to me like there's an important thing about. So the thing with storytelling is often um, that kind of like personal engagement, isn't it? That that face to face. Um, and so there's this now interesting connection between, uh, you know, using technology and people really needing that sense of connection and, and that allows storytelling, uh, even in a, in a non-traditional digital format to really kind of answer that need uh, to come into its own. Yes. And one of the things that happened last year, actually, when Festival at the Edge didn't sort of run in a physical form was that they did um, virtual fate uh, where they released lots of uh, lots of stories online during the weekend that would have been that festival and they did some really great things with that and I was very grateful that some of the participants in that gave me a lot of advice to give the storytellers about you know just good camera technique um, 
where to where to look when you're telling the stories, um, what things work, what don't. I mean, I find it really hard because I'm quite a physical storyteller. I use a lot of my drama training. Um, I'm not really over the top, but I do like embodying characters a lot. Um, and I can't do that. I can't be gesturing all the time um, <laughs> when you're talking to a camera because your frame is tiny and, and that doesn't work. So uh, there's quite a lot, I think, that we're learning as we're going along. But I've seen some stunning performances in the last in the last week of tellers who have been um, experimenting with different things, but just come across as really, really warm. I guess we're learning to be TV artists, aren't we, rather than um, in-person live performance artists. And that's quite a, sh a shift to get your head around. Yes. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. It'll be um, fascinating to see where it goes. Um, mm. You know, you said for you it was about reaching audiences who might ordinarily not be able to come and see you. I know that for me and Seb, doing it as a podcast is a way of us overcoming uh, not really having the time to be gigging or touring artists. Yeah, That's true, actually. The accessibility works on both sides, don't they? Both for the, the audiences, but also the performers. Um, and the lovely thing about podcasts is that um, they sort of defy time a little bit. You know, you can record... As long as you've recorded the thing, you can listen to it whenever um, and someone can access that performance whenever as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really great thing like that. I always enjoyed the ensemble nature of a lot of uh, storytelling performances um, where, you know, you have sound and music and, uh, and musicians and that kind of thing. Uh, that's great. But um, if you're inspired by that, then if if you're not an artist who has a lot of um, contact or the ability to kind of bring that all together, then uh, the the podcast format through um, kind of online audio resources and licensing various artists and things kind of allows us to do a bit of uh, that kind of thing uh, more easily. I think it's really important as well. Uh... I mean, like all kind of folk art circles, I think um, storytelling can be a little bit localised in that you'll go and see loads of tellers at a festival when you're all displaced, but most of the time you go to your local clubs and you might never hear of someone who's excellent because they're, you know, in Cornwall or somewhere sort of that's not in your, in your area. Um, whereas uh, one of the comments I had on the online Decameron was like, this is a great resource just to show me how many tellers there are out there and how many good people there are and maybe we could get more people visiting our clubs so I sort of hope it uh it widens widens awareness a little bit and introduces us to tellers that perhaps we hadn't heard of before um, and your your podcast absolutely does the same thing and um, it's, it's a really great way to um to hear people whose yeah whose stories if you're not in that club on that night you'll never hear I think just folk culture in general um uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about hearing uh, hearing you tell is that you, you're aware of all of these amazing stories that uh, simply a lot of us don't know exist. For a lot of people, that's true of the folk world in general as well. Yes, or, or just with storytellers of all types. And I suppose stories are quite a personal thing um, in that you, know, you remember the ones you were told in your culture when you were a child and then you gather stories as you grow older. Um, and then sometimes you come across a story that you thought was from one culture in a completely different one. Uh, so we had uh, a couple of different tellings in the modern Decameron of the, um, the peasant doctor, or rather the doctor who um, 
cures people by convincing them that maybe they're not quite as ill as they thought they were. Um, and those two tellings were really different. And I've read that um, one of those in um, an Arabic text, and I have read one of those in an Italian text. And they're really good um, evidence for lots of cultural communication and stories being shared. But it's sort of like bumping into an old friend in a foreign country and you weren't expecting to find them. Um, so that's, that's one of the lovely things about, about telling. And some stories, I just think, wow, I have never heard that. That is amazing. To finish up, I asked Daisy about what the future holds and what other kinds of storytelling projects she was looking to bring to life. There are lots of sh- sort of hypothetical shows I would love to do one day. Um, I've just launched uh, Mapa Mundi, which is uh, based on the medieval map. So I would like to tell that in Hereford Cathedral in front of their medieval Mapa Mundi. I'd like to tell my biotapestry show in front of the biotapestry. Um, hopefully that will happen if, if lockdown finishes when the tapestry is visiting. Um, but yeah, lots of other stories. Um, at some point, I'd like to attempt a version of Jane Eyre, actually, because she uh, Bronte weaves in a lot of folk story into her novel, and I think that could be a very interesting thing to to explore um, the sort of the folk elements, the the gothic horror elements that she she plays with, and see see how you could tell that story through the the tales that Bronte references. Um, so there's there's all sorts I'd like to do. Really, <laughs> it's just uh, finding time. And last of all, I asked where you could go to find out about future performances from Daisy, whether in the physical or the virtual realm. If you Google Daisy Black and storytelling, um, you'll find my website and I list gigs up there. Uh, There is talk that I might do another live stream uh, storytelling performance. So if that's going to happen, I I will definitely be putting more publicity out about that, but that will appear on my website too. You've been listening to Sir Bourangier of the Long Arse, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with medievalist Daisy Black. Once again, if you'd like to find out more about Daisy's work or attend one of her future gigs or storytelling sessions, you can find her at www.daisyblack.uk. The Lore and Legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentel. To find out more about episodes of Lore and Legend, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk and you can also check out our episode blog posts. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider joining Christy and Paul and Sean in supporting this podcast by becoming a patron. Visit our website and click support us for more details. Thanks again for listening and stay safe out there, story folk.